And that same love that will not let us go is what Paul said was the constraining force in his life and ministry. He said, for the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if no one died for all, then we're all dead. And we go in the security and the comfort of knowing that Christ will never leave us nor forsake us, that his unconditional love for us is everlasting. But we also ought to be motivated by that same love to share that love with others. As Paul and Silas being ordained of God and approved by those at the church were sent out on their second missionary journey. We pick it up in uh, first, or excuse me, in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. We'll look at the first nine verses this morning. We know that Paul and Silas were led very clearly through the vision of the Macedonian man to head to that region in the first city where they ministered was Philippi. And of course, we understand that uh, what happened there, we've looked at that a little bit the last couple of weeks. You see the conversion of the Philippian jailer and his household. And then last week we saw how Paul and Silas used their privilege as Roman citizens, not for their own benefit, but for the protection and the benefit of the church and their brethren at Philippi. And when the magistrates had let them go, they pled for them to immediately depart from Philippi, yet Paul and Silas had unfinished work. They went back to the church and encouraged them. And we find this last phrase in Acts chapter 16 and verse 40, that they comforted them and departed. So where did they go? Well, they departed for Thessalonica. Let's read beginning in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, after his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen from again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. So Paul and Silas leave Philippi, and they travel along the main highway. It is the Via Ignatia, actually a Roman highway 700 miles long. Now Thessalonica was an independent city. That is, they were part of a Greek state, um, but because they were actually on the side of the Roman Empire when a great battle was going on between uh, the empire and the republic, uh, they were allowed to govern themselves. And so they were not under direct Roman rule, but they were considered an independent city. And so they had politarchs or local uh, politicians, rulers. And then they also had an elected assembly of local citizens that also sat on a ruling committee. Uh, and uh, they were the main city in this region, about 100 miles from Philippi. And they were a commercial powerhouse because of the geography. They were of course, close to uh, seaports and that sort of thing. There were military outposts and, and centers of commerce not uh, far away from them. And so this was a powerhouse. As even as uh, Josh was reading out this morning, we'll look at this a little bit later, that the word of the Lord sounded out from Thessalonica throughout all the known region. And so uh, Housen uh, comments and says, we see at once how appropriate a place it was for one of the starting points of the gospel in Europe. We can appreciate the force of what Paul said to the Thessalonians within a few months of a departure from them. From you, the word of the Lord sounded forth like a trumpet, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. And so it was a strategic place. So our first point this morning in our message is that Paul strategically reaches an area with the gospel. We see that in the first three verses. Now, Paul went to a major city. He did not stop 
to preach the gospel in Amphipolis or Apollonia. Uh, why? Well, because he, I believe he knew that when we got to Thessalonica and the church was established there, that the gospel would go from that central point out. Um, he was also looking uh, for a synagogue. And we don't know if the, these other two cities had that or not. But Paul, under, I believe, the direction of the Holy Spirit, uh, is making a beeline for Thessalonica, realizing it is of spiritually strategic importance. So he goes to the synagogue. And he reasons from the scriptures with them for three days. And we'll look at that in just a minute. But one of the points I'd like to make is that he, he went to the synagogue. Not only pointing that out that that was his pattern, but that was his pattern for a couple of reasons. One is that it, he had a burden. He says, uh, Paul writes to the Romans and his brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to Israel is that they might be saved. He had a burden to reach Jew, other Jews, Israelite brethren, with the gospel of Christ. Remember that the church started at Jerusalem. Jews were responding to the gospel. That Jews responded throughout uh, the dispersion. And so Paul, as his pattern was, went there because he had a burden to reach his own people with the gospel. But also he had already kind of a cultural understanding. He could relate. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's he was under the teaching of Gamaliel. Uh, he was zealous concerning the law. He grew up in that culture. And, and having that background and having that culture, uh, it was kind of an, an easy segue for him or a natural place for him to start in reaching a city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knew how the Jewish mind worked. He knew how even the Greek God-fearers, those who were not full-blown proselytes, maybe there were some that were proselytes, but many of the Gentiles that were God-fearers still seeking after God but had not committed to becoming uh, full-blown uh, Jewish proselytes, that, that there was, they had a certain way of thinking. He would have understood what they had been taught. Uh, he was very comfortable within that setting. And so he went there. That was his background. That was kind of his understanding. And uh, it was something that he was culturally familiar with. Uh, he would also have been considered a rabbi. And as a rabbi, it was, it was a cultural uh, thing where they would invite a visiting rabbi to get up and read scripture uh, and to make comments on the scripture. And so Paul already had an advantage when he went to any city um, outside of Israel, when he'd go to that synagogue, uh, that he would be invited to read a portion of the scripture. And then from there, he would proclaim through the Old Testament scriptures, he would pl proclaim Jesus. So he took full advantage of this cultural uh, courtesy. And then he engaged in spiritual conversation. Look with me, there's a couple of interesting words I want you to see. Here, if you would, in verse 2, And Paul, as his manner was, went in with them three Sabbath days and reasoned with them. And that word reasoned is the word where we get the English word to dialogue. So the idea is that he had not, it wasn't just he was preaching, but he actually engaged them in a discussion. So what would that have kind of looked like? How can we do that? Well, he would have asked some questions. He would have gone in. He would, he would, have, he would have read the scriptures he would have propounded a thought and he would have asked questions. He would have had dialogue back and forth. He would have engendered a discussion. But that's not where he stopped. He didn't just go in and ask some questions and get in a spiritual discussion. But that's where he started. And I'm sure that he probably asked some questions concerning the Messiah, which he knew that most of them would have been unclear at best. And it would give him an opportunity then to begin to open up the scriptures and to be able to proclaim Christ from them. 
And the point is this, that he kept to the scriptures. If you look back in verse 2, the Bible says, and he reasoned with them, he has this discussion with them, not just based on his opinions or on philosophy, but out of the scriptures. So he would open up a scripture, and he might get into a discussion, and they might say something about that passage of scripture, and then he would say, well, then if that's true, if what you're saying is true, then, then what does Isaiah mean when he says... And what was Micah talking about when he says, or, or what did the psalmist mean when he says? We even see the Lord Jesus Christ himself doing that out of the scriptures uh, with crowds that listen to him preach and as he's talking with the Pharisees. So Paul's following a pattern or an example even uh, from the ministry of our Savior in that. And so he's having this discussion, he's listening, he's asking questions, but he's keeping it to the scriptures. And then... He began to explain the scriptures. Look, if you would, in verse 3, opening. The idea of opening is to begin to explain or to expound. We need to uh, share the gospel. I think there's also another thing with this. Not only is he opening the word of God, but I believe he's also at the same time praying and trusting that God would open up the hearts and the minds of those in that synagogue that are hearing the preaching. You see, the Bible tells us in Luke 24, remember Luke, uh, the Holy Spirit used Luke to write this two-volume set of the gospel of Luke and then Acts of the Apostles. And Luke records in Luke 24, 25 to 27, This is to the two after his resurrection on the way to Emmaus. Then said he unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The prophets come from where? What's he talking about? The Old Testament prophets, right? Okay. And beginning at Moses, that would have been what? The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And all the prophets, major prophets and minor prophets. He expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he's opening up the scriptures to them and he's beginning to open their understanding. And that's the key in verse 27, or excuse me, in verse 32. And they said one to another, this is after Christ uh, disappeared from their sight. They said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked to us by the way and while he opened it to us, the scriptures. So there's the sense in which here, Paul to these Thessalonians in this synagogue is opening up the scriptures. He starts by reasoning with them from the scriptures. He's asking them questions from the scriptures. He is then answering from other scriptures. He's wanting them to see that the central theme of the Old Testament scriptures is Christ. Paul says, look, the law was my schoolmaster to bring me to Christ. He said, if I hadn't known the law, I wouldn't have known what sin was. If I didn't know what sin was, I wouldn't know I'm a sinner. And I would not have understood my helplessness to attain God's righteousness and that I needed a Savior. But even the Old Testament not only tells me of the law which condemns me, but of the Savior which would come to redeem me. And so the law is my schoolmaster to bring me to Christ. So he reasoned with them, but then he begins to open up the Scriptures, praying that God would open up their understanding. Even as in Luke 24, 24, a little bit further after the two to the way of the Maus, he does this with his own disciples in verses 44 and 45. And he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So Christ is again opening up the Old Testament scriptures to his own disciples after his resurrection. Then the Bible says, opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be praying that God would open up the understanding of our unsaved neighbors and co-workers and relatives and acquaintances 
so that they might receive the wonderful gospel. But let me tell you something else. No, I believe that is the primary application. I believe there's a legitimate secondary application. There very rarely goes a day goes by when I get in my recliner chair in the morning with my cup of coffee or hot tea and open up the word of God that I don't begin by praying and saying, Lord, would you open up my understanding that I might understand the scriptures? Then, Lord, would you open up my heart? Folks, the Bible says our hearts deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, we know we're created as a new creation, but we still have a sin nature. And, you know, my sin nature, my flesh still wants to resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There are times when my brain wants to reason away that which I know is the truth that God wants to use to transform my life. Has that ever happened to you? And so I need to pray and say, God, would you please give me an open heart to receive with humility and with submission. By the way, you know what the word worship is in the English? Literally, it's worship. And it is the idea of worship is that I surrender myself. I kneel before God in a posture of humility saying you are worthy to be obeyed. You are worthy to be submitted to. You are worthy to call the shots in my life to tell me what to do to control my life. To tell me what is right and what is wrong and, and how I need to change. You are worthy. I worship you. And the way we worship God is to submit to what he tells us. And not just mentally acknowledge it. The word of God is not just given as a textbook for a Bible class. It's a transforming truth. And that's the way we need to approach the scriptures. And let me ask you, and this is not anything on you in any negative way. I just want to make you think a little bit. Did you say at any time, maybe on your way to church this morning, Lord, would you open up my understanding that I might understand the scriptures, open my heart and mind that I might receive your truth, that I might see something where I have been blinded, and that I might acknowledge something that I have been resisting, that I would submit to you, and that, you that Lord, I'm opening my, 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 mouth, my mouth wide. You said open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. Lord, I'm opening my heart wide. Would you fill it with your truth and transform my life? Did you come expecting God to change you today? Or did you just come for hearing maybe something interesting and helpful or encouraging and to fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ and be together? And there's nothing wrong with those things. But folks, if we don't come with the expectation, the desire to God to transform us, then we have missed a major point of the reason that God wants us to come together. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, what an exciting verse. We saw this a couple of weeks ago in a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, worshiped God, which worshiped God, heard us, and whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. I think that's the heart of a pastor. Lord, open my heart, open the heart of the people that you've entrusted to my care. Not just that they would be able to understand but that they would allow you to change them. And then he opened, and then the Bible also says the word alleging. Now the word alleging literally means to set before in order to prove. It's kind of a legal term, and so it is where, uh, it is where the prosecuting attorney would take the evidence and he would lay out the evidence, whether that's physical evidence or whether that is eyewitness testimony or wh whatever it is, DNA evidence, whatever it is, that all the evidence would be laid out to persuade this allegation is true. And so he is, he's opening the scriptures and he's explaining the scriptures and he's alleging, he's setting before them uh, valid scriptural truth to validate this gospel that he is preaching to them. And what is it? Look, if you would, in verse 
Uh, three, opening and alleging that Christ must, needs, have suffered. Folks, do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me? But did the Father grant that request? No, because you know what? The Messiah had to die Amen. for our sins. There is no other way. Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby ye must be saved. Jesus said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is only one way to be reconciled to God, to have eternal life, to have your sins forgiven, to be right, and to escape the righteous wrath of God's holy judgment on your soul forever. And that is the responding to the loving sacrifice of Jesus Christ who had to die on the cross, who had to shed his perfect sinless blood as that sacrifice. For the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And we who are saved rejoice in Ephesians 1, 7, that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from sin. Amen. It's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. For Paul told the Corinthians that if Christ is not risen from the dead, your faith is in vain. You are yet in your sins. We are of all men most to be pitied. But then he assures them that now is Christ risen from the dead. One of the most verifiable facts in all of the history of mankind is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he rose from the dead. And opening an alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. So a little minor point here, but this is interesting. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. But some of those that were searching for Messiah... And I think we have a little bit of a hint when John the Baptist asks, sends his disciples to ask Christ, are you Messiah or do we look for another? Do you realize that some Jews in looking through Old Testament prophecy of Messiah saw and acknowledged the suffering Savior that he had to come and die for our sins, that he was going to suffer. But others also saw the Messiah who's going to come and rule and reign in his millennial kingdom and for all of eternity. And so some thought there were two different messiahs. And so what Paul is saying is, no, there are not two messiahs. There is one messiah. Messiah is not human. He is divine. It's Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God. And this Jesus of Nazareth that I preach to you that never sinned, that died on the cross, that shed his blood, that was buried, that rose again. And we have seen it and we know it. We proclaim him to you out of the scriptures. There is one Messiah and he's Jesus Christ. And the Messiah that came and died and rose again is the only one who can save you from your sins. And he will come again as the King of Kings, as the Lord of Lords, as the righteous judge of all the earth, of the one who will reign throughout all of eternity. But he loves you. Amen. And he wants you to be with him in his eternal kingdom. And all you've got to do is acknowledge you're a sinner. And deserve eternal punishment because God is holy and righteous. Believe in the love of Jesus Christ for you personally. That God himself loves you so much that he, the son of God, died on the cross and shed his blood for you. And died in your place and suffered the wrath you deserve to suffer. And died willingly and rose again for you. And you can have eternal life. And the Bible says, if you look back with me, 
that he did this for three Sabbaths. In verse 2, and as his pause, his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbaths reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. Now we know that Paul was longer there than three Sabbaths. You say, well, how do you know? Read through the book of 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, you'll find out that Paul was there much longer than just three Sabbaths. But here's the point. Paul kept at this for three Sabbaths. In other words, people did not immediately, even out of all of that, people did not immediately believe on Christ. They wanted to hear more. And so Paul went back. Uh, folks, you know, we can have ongoing conversations. There is, it is, there's everything right. And I would absolutely encourage you to take gospel tracts with you. We have track racks. Uh, we have folks in our church. It's their ministry to keep those track rack supplies. Take them. Take those tracks with you and you get in a gospel conversation with somebody, hand them that gospel track, but also give them your contact information so you can follow up with them. Leave a, leave a track at the table. But if that's one of your favorite restaurants, always ask for that, that service person since you might have an opportunity again when you sit down to the table, say, hey, yeah, remember last time we were here, uh, we asked you what we could pray about and you said such and such. Well, hey, how's that going? And hey, you know what? Uh, we, we'd love to have you at church. And, but is there something new that we can pray about with you? Hey, you know, we left you a little pamphlet last time. I don't know if you read it or not, um, but I've got another one for you. And I, I'd like you to read about that because, you know, God loves you. And, and we've experienced the love of God. And we want you to experience it. You may or may not get to say all of that, but you can express that in your kindness in a generous tip, in leaving the gospel tract. But you know what, folks? It's not either or. It's, it's both and. We should also... Go have engaging conversations at work. Some of you have gone through the exchange and the exchange ministry actually has an app on it and you can share, share that with somebody. You get in a spiritual conversation with somebody at work and you say, hey, here's a free, here's a free app. I want you to download this and then I, want you to, I just want you to look through the first, the first page of that and then let's meet together for coffee tomorrow and we'll talk about that or in two days or whatever and we'll talk through that. And you can go through the exchange with them through that app. Or you can invite some people to come over to your home for a Bible study. And there are different ways. But folks, we need to be building ongoing relationships with people in our community for the sake of the gospel. And, and don't be discouraged if somebody doesn't get saved the first time you present the gospel to them. Even the Apostle Paul led of the Holy Spirit, knowing that that's where God wanted him to go and is preaching God's truth. There was three Sabbaths where he was teaching that. People would go home, they would think about it, maybe have conversations with him in an informal way during the week. And the next Sabbath, there they go. And don't you know that a lot of those Jews came back armed to the teeth with their philosophy and ideas to argue with Paul. And he graciously again did the same thing, reasoning with them from the scriptures, opening a legend that Messiah had to suffer and die and that he rose again from the dead. He's the only way of salvation. And he was after that for three weeks. But after three weeks, you know what happens? A church is established. How do you know that? The Bible says in verse 4, and some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. And that word consorted literally is the idea is, is they were assigned to Paul and Silas. And the idea is that they then stopped going to the synagogue exclusively and they also started meeting as a group of believers. Now it doesn't mean that they didn't still go to the synagogue from time to time. They may have. But what it means is they established a church and, and those who had believed now are meeting together as a body of believers, as a local church at Thessalonica. And I believe that they probably still use their connections with those in the synagogue and those relationships they had, but they probably did not continue long in, in going back for worship services. They began to meet and worship as a church there in Thessalonica as a group. 
So God saves souls and establishes the church. That's the second point. We see that in verse 4. Some Jews trusted in Jesus as their Messiah. You see that in verse 4. Some of them, speaking of the Jews, believed. And then look at this. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, the God-fearing Gentiles. Many, and they would, have, of course, been Greek. They were in Macedonia, which is a region of Greece. They believed. And of the devout, or, and of the chief women, not a few. And the chief women would have been either through their lineage uh, they had inherited a, 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 a position, a powerful position of respect within the community. Um, it could have also been through marriage or, or through business, like Lydia, a seller of purple. She was very wealthy. She had great influence because she was successful in business. But they trusted Christ for eternal life. And, uh, and you know, whether they were Jews or whether they were Gentiles, whether they were wealthy or whether they were poor, whether they were slaves or whether they were free, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, for by one spirit, and that's capitalized, it's the Holy Spirit, are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been made all to drink into one spirit. Aren't you glad that the gospel transcends ethnicities and cultures and civilizations and, and epochs of time? Aren't you so glad for the eternal and universal power of the gospel to those who believe? Have you ever just stopped to wonder what it's going to be like in heaven to meet Christians from the Roman church from the first century that Paul wrote to? To be united with brothers and sisters in Christ that were martyred in the Colosseum for their faith? To be able to Hear a little more of Martin Luther's story as we walk maybe down one of the streets of golden heaven. Now, I know the greatest delight is going to be with our Savior, but you know one of the blessings we have on earth is our fellowship with one another. Don't you think that's going to be magnified a bit when we're with Christ and each other in heaven? And you know it's going to be amazing. Wouldn't it be neat? Just kind of picture yourself on the top of a, of a, of a hill. You're at the, the pinnacle of this hill. And below you, there's this valley that spreads away, kind of like maybe the valley of, of Megiddo, of Armageddon, where millions of people can be there. And you begin to see people from all different cultures and all different epochs of history that have gone through all kinds of things. But we all have in common that we were saved by faith in Jesus Christ, Messiah. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? Folks, eternity for the Christian is going to be anything but boring. It's going to be so, so incredible. And to be able to be a part of that church, brothers and sisters in Christ. And then I want you to see the reality, though, and last of all, that Satan, through unbelieving people, opposes the advance of the gospel. Look at verses 5 to 9. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they're looking for Paul and Silas, uh, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. These are troublemakers whom Jason hath received. And these do all contrary to the degrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, one Jesus and they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. 
Their motivation was envy. They, they, you did these, some of these rabbis, man, they were being discredited because even some of their own Jewish flock were turning to Christianity. They stopped trying to establish their own righteousness according to the law. They no longer held the tradition of the elders with the same authority as the scriptures themselves. Some of these, these Jew, these Gentile, God-fearing Greeks, these women of influence, they were leaving. Not only were their crowds being depleted, but their resources and their influence were beginning to go away. Reminds me of the owners of the demon-possessed girl in Acts chapter 16. What made them angry? What caused them to stir up a crowd in an uproar when they saw that the hopes of their gains were gone? They made a profit at the expense of a demon-tortured girl. And when Paul, by permission of the Holy Spirit, cast that demon out and freed that girl, and I believe Christ saved her soul, those men had no joy that something helpful had happened to that girl. Instead, they were angry and wanted Paul and Silas beaten, maybe even to death, to be silenced, at least somehow get their revenge because they lost their expectation to profit from her. False religion cares not so much about the welfare and destiny of the soul as the temporal benefits of money and power. And we see that these Jews move with envy, were false teachers. Peter says in 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3, but there were false prophets also among the people. Talking about the Old Testament. Even as there shall be false teachers among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Now listen to this. And through covetousness. What's that? It's greed. And with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Let me tell you that Satan absolutely has nothing of your best interest at heart. Satan came only to seek to destroy and to kill. Satan is the enemy of your soul and your life. Christ came to save and to seek that which was lost. Christ came to make alive that which was dead, to give hope to that which was hopeless. And Satan moves through unbelieving people. And we need to remember something, though, that's important. Paul writes and he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Even these Jews, though they were the antagonists as false religionists against Paul and Silas and the gospel, they ultimately were not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Had those Jews, those Jewish leaders that stirred up this riot against Paul and Silas and against Jason and other brethren at Thessalonica, had they come to Christ and repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ, let me ask you, would Jesus Christ forgive them and save them? Yes, for Jesus said, he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Satan comes to destroy. Satan is the deceiver. Paul says that Satan, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, is the one who blinds the minds of those who have not yet believed so that they cannot see the light of the glorious gospel, the very image of Christ. So Satan uses false religion to deceive, but the motivation often of false teachers and false religions is the power and the possessions that they gain through their deceit. 
I want you to see something else. Their, their method was trickery. Man, it's the, the antithesis of the gospel. What does Paul say? Look, we, we come to you proclaiming the truth in a very transparent way. We don't come with, with words of trickery. The Bible says not doing the work of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's the way God expects us as believers to minister his truth with transparency and with truth, with no trickery, with no manipulation. But that's the exact opposite of what these false teachers did. What did they do? They hired fellows of the baser sort, says the King James Version. Literally, it translates idle men of the marketplace. These men were troublemakers. These men would not commit to a steady job. Uh, They were, in a sense, guns for hire. And so these Jewish religious authorities go, they know exactly where to find these rascals. And they go and they pay them and they put a message in their mouth and they fire them up and send them on their way and they stir up a riot. So they, what they did <clears throat> was trickery. By the way, folks, Satan never fights fair. Their, their actions are in line with Satan's devices. These were not men of God. They found these market loiterers who do anything for a buck, hired them to stir up a riot and lead an assault on the home of a believer, Jason. This sneaky, deceitful, lawless, desperate attempt to stop the spread of the gospel and the establishment of the church failed. They sought to discredit Paul and Silas through the court of public opinion. They were going to bring them out to the people. And that is that elected assembly that represented the people. And when they couldn't find Paul and Silas and they could to get him before the assembly of the people, then they grabbed Jason and some of the other believers and they took him in front of the politarchs, the, the other rulers, and began to make, again, these false accusations. They said, these, these Christians are stirring up trouble and being a threat to society. But wait a minute. Who found the lewd fellows of a baser sort? Paid them and stirred them up and caused a riot that set the whole city in an uproar. Was that Paul and Silas that did that or was it these false teachers? It's the false teachers. Don't you find it ironic how often Satan uses the strategy to accuse Christians of the very evil that his minions, if you would put it that way, the, the people, the unbelievers that, are, that are, are doing this work of opposing the gospel and persecuting believers. But isn't it interesting how often those who persecute the gospel and oppose the gospel accuse Christians of the very evil that they themselves are guilty of? It was this crowd, this crowd that stirred up the riot, that set the city in an uproar. It wasn't Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas came into the synagogue and, and they reasoned and they opened the scriptures and they explained the scriptures and they set before them biblical reason and proclaimed the gospel. And folks were saved. That's a good thing. They weren't starting out a riot. Folks, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You proclaim the gospel, you're proclaiming the gospel of peace. These Christians... They're saying our seditious revolutionaries threatening rebellion against Caesar. You know, this same accusation was given against the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Pilate began to consider that the Jews might have a legitimate claim. Because what did Pilate say when he first questioned Jesus? He comes back out to the crowd and says, I find in him no fault at all. 
what the Jews say. He claims himself to be a king. We have only one king, and that is Caesar, which, by the way, was the height of hypocrisy. Most of them hated Caesar and the Roman rule over them. They were looking for a Messiah that would throw off the yoke of Rome where they could have their independence again. It's why they mocked Jesus by putting a crown of thorns on his head in a royal robe that was really a discarded rag. It was part of the Roman, the Roman soldier's uniform. But they put that scarlet ragged robe on Jesus, crown of thorns pressed upon his brow and a scepter, which was a reed that they grabbed out of his hand and beat down the crown of thorns upon his head. And over his cross was written the inscription, the king of the Jews. Yet Jesus answered to Pilate when Pilate asked him about this accusation in John 18, 36 was this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then, my servants, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. We also find, though, that even here, that this, though this would have been a very serious accusation, that these men, they dragged Jason, they dragged the believers, and they're accusing them and also Paul and Silas of, of this seditious treachery. There was no clear evidence given against it. One commentator writes, although the charge of treason was serious, the Politarchs did not seem terribly upset, perhaps because no real evidence was presented. Some sort of a bond was demanded of Jason, making him responsible for the actions of the missionaries. And then Jason and the other believers were released. But then the text implies that there's an uneasiness, an uneasiness among many of the populace. So they're released, they're let go. And then we're going to see next week that the brethren thought that the, the best course of action was for Paul and Silas to leave. And again, Paul and Silas had been there for several months. Not only do we know that the church was established but Paul writes, and we understand in, in scriptural, uh, there's scriptural documentation in the New Testament that Paul received two offerings from the Philippian church while he was at Thessalonica, reaching Thessalonica with the gospel and investing in these believers. Though his time was short, God did a great amount of work in what we would call a humanly short amount of time. And then Paul and Silas, of course, leave Thessalonica, and we'll see that next week, so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. And we see a, a familiar pattern of the same way in which Paul and Silas left Philippi. But the point is this, uh, that, uh, they, that Paul and Silas stayed until, again, their mission at Thessalonica was accomplished. And then for the good of the church, for the good of the brethren, and trusting that the work that God had begun, he would complete and folks, don't you understand that none of us are, 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 are not expendable. God can do the work of God without us. Now, while God gives us life and he gives us any kind of health or resources, then God will use us and he has a mission for our life. Amen. But if we begin to think, what, what will this church do without me? What would this ministry do without me? Then we miss the point. We're just a tool. We're just a servant. It is God who does the work. God established this church. He just used Paul and Silas there. So what are the applications for us this morning? What do we take away? I want to challenge you, first of all, that if you have never come to understand that Jesus Christ Messiah had to die for sins, and that he had to die for your sins, 
that the only way you can have eternal life is to understand that he died and shed his blood and suffered in your place and paid the penalty that you could never pay, satisfied the demands of God's justice, died, was buried, and rose again for you. And if you've never called on Christ as your Savior, I would encourage you to heed the message of Paul and Silas to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You say, Pastor Todd, how can I do that? In a moment, we'll stand. Our heads will be bowed. Our pianist will play a hymn of invitation. The associate pastors will be in the back. You can go to one of them and say, I want to know Christ as my own personal Savior. I want to receive eternal life. I want to know that when I die, I will be with God forever. Something like that. They'll know what you mean. They'll have someone take you to a quiet place, sit down, and in just a few minutes, show you the way of salvation from God's word, and you can call on Christ and trust him and settle the destiny of your eternal soul by putting it in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a born-again believer, these applications. First, take advantage of the providential opportunities that you have. You know what? God puts you in whatever ethnic group you're with because there are certain cultural things that you understand. Use that to your advantage. There are certain settings and situations in which you would be comfortable when others of your brothers and sisters in Christ might not be as comfortable. That they might not be as familiar with certain of your cultural background things. It could also be a religious background. So maybe, you know, maybe some people like my, my dad, for instance, my dad was saved out of Roman Catholicism. My dad is very comfortable sitting down with a Roman Catholic person and talking and reasoning with them through the scriptures and helping them and sharing his testimony because he grew up in that whole atmosphere and understood it very well. Not that dad can't witness and, and share the gospel with others, but you know what? My dad has a real affinity when it comes to witnessing to people, when you find out that they, that they come from a Catholic background, because that was the religion that Satan was using to deceive him into thinking that salvation was through good works and through a specific denomination. What is your religious background? What do you understand? How did God enlighten your understanding? What scriptures did the Spirit of God use you to show you your, the error of your ways and the truth of the gospel when you came to Christ? Use those to your advantage. Uh, what interests, what hobbies do you have? What opportunities do you have? It would be, for instance, let's say that um, there's one lady in the church, and let's say she loves quilting, okay? And then let's say that there's another lady in the church, and she loves doing watercolor. So she's the one lady who does the watercolor all the time, say, you know what? I'd really like to learn quilting so that I can reach ladies who quilt with the gospel. Well, that's not a bad thing. But why not, if you love watercolor and you can be involved in a group of, of other people that do watercolor, why not use that as a venue? You're already familiar with that. You can speak the language and, and all of that. You can talk technique and other things. There might even be some illustrations of the gospel that come to your mind because you're so familiar with watercolor. And the lady over here who does the quilting, uh, same thing. She's already familiar with that and that culture and that idea and that mindset. And maybe she has some ideas of, of how she can illustrate the gospel even through quilting. Uh, and, and get an opportunity for using that interest as a common bond for the sake of building a relationship to have an opportunity to share the gospel. So with our interests, with, with our, our experiences in life, with our backgrounds, let's use those things. That's what Paul did. He went into the synagogue. He grew up in the synagogue. He grew up in Judaism. And he knew Judaism inside and out. And he had a heart for his Jewish brethren. He used his cultural background and he used cultural, uh, cultural kindnesses 
uh, for his own advantage, not for his own advantage, but for his advantage in sharing the gospel. And then wisely share God's word. And sometimes, folks, we need to not just get right to a presentation of the gospel. Sometimes asking questions is a good thing. Getting into a discussion, getting people to think and, and to consider. And then opening the scriptures while we're praying. As we open the scriptures and as we're able to share the gospel, we're praying that God, is because he's only the only one who can do this, will open their hearts and their minds. And then focus on Jesus Christ. What did Paul preach? Messiah had to suffer and die and rise again from the dead. And this Jesus whom I proclaim unto you is that Christ, that Messiah. Focus on Jesus Christ. It's not that when somebody asks a legitimate spiritual question that does not exactly have to do with the gospel that we just ignore that or brush that to the, to the side because we want to stay on point. We can address that. But we never want to get so sidetracked from that that we don't get back to Christ and bring a person's focus back to Christ because Christ is the way of salvation. And then just like we see here, just like we saw at Philippi, we should expect mixed results. Some are going to believe, some are going to reject, and some are going to oppose and persecute. But don't forget, some believed. A church was established. And from this strategic city of Thessalonica, the word of God went out, not just through Macedonia and Achaia, the two, those two regions of Greece, but throughout the known world from Thessalonica. The amazing things that God did in that church because God established and God built that church. Don't you want to be in on what God is doing? Don't you want God to use you? I do. Is there something that might be holding you back as a believer that you need to commit to God today so that you can be a part of what God is doing if so, then would you make that right with the Lord? If you're a believer today uh, and there's something in your heart and life that's going on and you'd like someone to counsel with you or pray with you from the word of God, we'd also invite you to go back to one of the pastors at the back when we have our invitation in just a moment and get that help that you need and ask somebody uh, for that help. Shall we bow our heads for prayer as we get ready to begin our time of invitation? Our Father, we are so thankful for the work that you did at Thessalonica through Paul and Silas and the team. Oh, Lord, we know that you're the one who accomplishes the work, but you use us as instruments. Lord, may we be vessels fit for your use. May we be vessels of honor. And though we're not perfect, may we be clean. And may we be tender and teachable and changeable. Open our hearts and minds for the truth that you have for us and open the hearts and minds of those with whom we can share the gospel. Prepare them and then give us the boldness and the love that would move us and constrain us like it did Paul to share the gospel with others. Father, for those here today or that are watching by way of live stream that have not come to put their faith in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior, may this be the day when they would acknowledge to you through prayer that they have sinned and deserve eternal death, but understand that you suffered, Lord Jesus, and died and paid the price in their place. You rose from the dead and would they call on you through prayer and accept by faith, your gift of everlasting life today. May those of us who know you as Savior, may our hearts be open and receptive to what you have for us. Transform us through your truth. And Lord, help us to learn from this example in Thessalonica and how we should share the gospel and what we should expect, knowing, Lord, that someday we're going to stand before you and give an account. And Lord, enable us now through the work you're doing in our lives, even this morning, to be able to stand before you at the end of our life in your very presence, give that account, and then hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
Lord, we know it's all of your grace. May we submit, may your truth through the power of your grace transform us today. We ask in Jesus' name. Our heads are bowed.